0: You're here because you're curious about self-directed learning. You want inspiration, practical tips, information, and a community of people to share your experiences with. Our guests' advice and tips will help us all to create the most enriching learning environment we can for our kids. If that makes you curious, you've come to the right place. So let's learn how we can best facilitate our children in their learning pursuits. Welcome to the Rogue Learner Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rogue Learner podcast. So today's guest, I'm really excited to introduce you to. His name is Philip Mott. He is a former elementary school educator like myself, and now he's a homeschooling father of three young children. He lives with his wife in Indiana and is a regular contributor to fatheringtogether.org and firsttimeparentmagazine.com. We're going to talk today about so many of the topics that come up, especially for new unschooling parents, topics like screen time and bedtimes and the way that we partner with our children, power, struggles, relationship, connection, all of those really important details that are sort of our first aha moments or our biggest hurdles when we're just getting into unschooling. And so we're going to talk really honestly and openly and authentically about what we're doing in our houses and how sometimes our partners don't agree with us on the direction that we want to go. So we have to find a compromise. So we're going to talk about how we handle those things. I think this is going to be really valuable to a lot of people Like I said, especially ones who are just starting out with unschooling. And I mean, it might be a great reminder too for all of you who are seasoned or veteran (laughs) unschoolers. The other thing before we get started, I just wanted to mention is I'm very curious to know what topics you are really interested in having me research and find uh, guests to talk about. If you could please send me a short email, leave a voicemail, whatever type of communication you prefer, you can send me a DM on Instagram, whatever it is. I would just love to know what direction you want this podcast to go in. What kind of interviews do you want? Do you want more about what's going on with me and my kids? Do you want more about our journey? Do you want more about Do you want more experts on or a little bit of both? Like I'm very curious because this is a podcast I'm doing for you just as much as I'm doing for myself and I want it to reflect what the community actually needs. So please just reach out to me, get in touch. I would just really appreciate any feedback. Last thing before we start. If you have a moment to quickly leave a review, that would be amazing. It helps other people find this show, especially ones who are already looking for this type of content. And it helps, you know, grow our community and provide really helpful information to those who are on their path. So if you have a moment, that would be awesome. I would be so appreciative. And thanks for joining me. Hi, Philip. Thanks for joining me on the show today. I'm so excited to chat with you and get to know you a little bit better.
1: Hey, Jenna. Thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. I can't wait to talk about some of these topics with you today.
0: Before we get started on some of the topics that we wanted to discuss, I would love to hear how you and your family sort of got on to the path of self-directed education.
1: Absolutely. There's a few, I think, I almost consider them like conversions that I went through where there were like these aha moments where all of a sudden something that had never made sense to me all of a sudden made a lot of sense, you know, things like spanking, yelling at kids. Um, I was a teacher in an elementary school and I was becoming like all the teachers that I disliked in school and that did not sit well with me because I did not have a good experience in school, which was one of the reasons that I wanted to become a teacher. And so I started doing a lot of reading about child development, about student engagement, why are students not engaged? And so that kind of opened the, my mind became open to being a little bit more child centered and kind of designing the classroom around the child instead of trying to be what I call now authoritarian, which is me deciding what the kids do. So that was kind of the starting point. But then what really launched us into it was the, the work of Magda Gerber and we had our 13 month old and we were, playing with him and, you know, doing the things that families with a 13 year old do or 13 month old do. And, oh, I read some of her work about letting a child just direct their own play, even an infant, which I was, I was big into my own self-directed learning. I saw the value of that when I was a teenager, but I had never thought that an infant could do that. And so after we read some of her work, we were just hooked. Uh, We could not believe how much our infant son could entertain himself, uh, could learn, and was capable of doing without any prompting or any reminding and nagging and things like that. And so that that was what I consider the main aha moment That helped us say to ourselves, self-directed learning is something that we really want for our family.
0: So first of all, what always is surprising to me is how many educators there are (laughs) who have these. Yeah. Epiphanies, I'll, I'll say, you know, where they're just, yeah, they're in the classroom. And, you know, I, I have to say that I relate to that, that feeling of becoming the teacher that you never thought you would be or want to be the mm-hmm. teachers that you didn't like in school. I found myself like that. So in so many situations and it was, yeah, uncomfortable and it didn't fit my personality and it, it was, it felt wrong, but it was, brought upon by stress and expectations that were outside of my control most of the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what, did you ever find it? Like you said that you tried to engage all your students. You went more child led and I did the same thing in my classroom and, you know, inquiry base and all of the things, but I never ever felt that I engaged all all of my students. I definitely felt like they had fun in my class, but at the end of the day, I, I, I questioned whether they actually learned what we were, you know, what the curriculum was meant to be teaching after the test was finished. What was your experience with that?
1: Yeah, I think I would go even further back in my development and say that I didn't even get to the point where all of my kids were having fun. I just I was hitting so many barriers with my team, Uh, the fifth grade team that I was working with at the time that I just could not implement the things that I really wanted to do. And I tried to create these this program for my students. I was actually teaching in an online school at that point and i had developed a program that i called connect with my students where instead of just focusing on academics in our phone calls cuz we had biweekly phone calls with our families i would focus on connecting and creating a relationship with them and that was doing really well and i kind of tracked their grades alongside of that and i started to see some of my kids that were that had been struggling, the more that they were able to connect with me, I started to see more compliance and more engagement in their curriculum. The parents would take more of my advice about things to do. So I was definitely having some success, but it wasn't anywhere near to what I'm experiencing now. And I, I think part of the problem was that I didn't recognize that you couldn't you couldn't expect a classroom of people to learn the same thing at the same time. It just doesn't make sense in terms of how kids learn and how people learn, especially.
0: Yeah, so that's, that is an interesting point because curriculum keeps us kind of bound to these timelines and these... Uh, chains, you know, it's like, this is the subject matter that is important in this grade at this specific time at this age. <laughs> right. And there's no flexibility. So a lot of parents, I think, would worry when they go into self-directed education, you know, they're comparing their children to other children who are in third grade, let's say, and they're learning these specific skills. Let's say multiplication, I think, is one that they learn at that age. But You know, I try to to calm those fears. I mean, now that I've done it for a while, I don't have those same fears myself anymore. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, when things are necessary to know. Are there any times when something just needs to be learned?
1: Right. I mean, I'm sure I I can think of a lot of safety examples where – you know, we let our preschooler cut their, cut her apples and you the, you need to know how to use a knife at that point. But I stay close also. So it's not like she needs to know everything. She doesn't need a full knife safety course. I stayed close enough that as she makes mistakes, I can be there to help. I actually wrote this down before we were chatting because I wanted to be careful not to... Not to try to imply that, that the things that we're talking about students learning, not that they are unimportant, but that they're so rarely important enough to justify putting tension, unnecessary tension on the relationship. So, for example, some moms and dads say to me, how are they going to learn new things or how are they going to learn like addition, for example, and kind of my internal question is, is addition so crucial to life that they learn it right now that I should make them feel like a bad person because they don't know how to add numbers yet? Because that's the real question that we're asking is not whether something is important. I think we all agree that people need to learn how to work with numbers, but is it so important that we're willing to actually criticize a child because they don't have that done yet. And when I put the question that way, the answer is almost always no.
0: Yeah, and I think even if we're not directly criticizing a child for not knowing something, it's implied when we test them and compare them to their peers, right?
1: Right, absolutely, and rank them and all kinds of things like that.
0: It reminds me actually of, in Germany, it's standard practice to put up all the test scores on the board after a test. Hmm. So it's like they'll do 90 to – sorry, 95 to 100% three students, 90 to 95 one student. They'll give you the stats of how many kids got whichever grades – I'm not really certain of the purpose. I still am trying to figure out what is the is this supposed to motivate students? Is this supposed to i i I can't I can't I mean I can't even from a teacher's standpoint, I'm hard pressed to understand the the reasoning,
1: <laughs> yeah, people really believe in that the competition ideology that if if I see how I compare to others. That it will motivate me to work harder and do more. But then you have to ask, so what is more valuable? Is it more valuable to beat another person and be better than another person? Or is the learning valuable on its own? Because if the learning isn't valuable for its own sake, then why are we doing it?
0: I loved what you said about, I mean, that's, I'm trying to let that all sink in the idea that, you know, as unschoolers, we believe that the relationship is of utmost importance. And so anything that you're, yeah, creating any sort of tension or making the child feel like, you know, there is conditional love in this house. (laughs) It's- obviously damages the relationship, but I think it also, what, in what world are they actually going to learn the thing? You know, they may remember it for you to perform a certain, I don't know, like they, they want your approval or, or maybe it, maybe they do the opposite and they just completely retaliate and resent you and don't do anything at all. Yeah. I, I can't think of a situation where that goes well.
1: Right. And parents and teachers often point to like, well, you didn't want to ride the roller coaster and I made you ride it anyway, even though you cried. And then you had enjoyed it and then you wanted to ride it again. And it's, I, I think it's a slippery slope to go down because then you can use that to justify any sort of action. And I think there's a philosophical difference between asking someone's permission and doing something just for their own good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is, this topic has been covered very well in uh, feminism and racism, uh, which are two topics that I'm not versed on enough to speak about. But I think that the the thought leaders in those two topics have a lot to teach A People who are trying to advocate for a more uh, partnering relationship between adults and children because those same principles apply where, you know, there was content out there about how to, you know, create more productive slaves and how to create a more productive spouse, you know, for men towards their wives. Um, There's a book I really want to read that I haven't picked up yet. It was called for her own good. And it was kind of the history of the patriarchal relationship of the man over the woman and how so many things in the family are done to the wife justified because it's for her own good, but ultimately was not, she had no say in those actions. And I think that's the same situation or a very similar situation that kids find themselves in. Things are constantly being done to them and justified because they're for their own good, even though the kid doesn't like the experience of it. And I think that's something that unschooling advocates are trying to speak out against and say, we need to get their permission. It doesn't matter if they end up enjoying it. Um, we need to get their permission and it kind of comes back to this idea of consent um that you know in the in the example of like sexual abuse it doesn't matter if the abused got any pleasure from it the the fact that the matter remains is that if that act was done without their consent then it was illegal and so we want to extend that same idea to adults and children that you don't have a a free pass to do something, even if it's for that child's good.
0: Yeah, and I think you the wording that you chose there was really important to hear. A lot of things we do are to children and not right. with them. Right. And I think that's even if you just spend some time thinking about that, in itself, you start to really, you can start to make a list of things that we do to children as opposed to what we do with them. And the list of things we do to them is far longer than the things that we do with them.
1: Yeah. A good mentor of mine, they, they kind of built a whole school around this idea of it's not power over, it's power with. Mm-hmm. And that was a foundational principle within their school that. We do not want to exercise power over our students. We want to exercise power with them. So they constantly brought them to the decision table and allowed the kids to make decisions about what the school would do instead of telling the students this is what the school is doing.
0: I have to reference in the show notes, I'll have to look it up, but I did listen to an amazing podcast episode with Brene Brown about that specific topic. Now she was talking more about politicians Mm -hmm. and their use of power uh, or abuse of power, Mm -hmm. but she also used those, um, those same, that same wording, uh, power over and power with, and she describes the two. And I would just butcher it if I tried to explain it, but, (laughs) uh, but I will, but I will reference it in the show notes for anyone who's curious to go a little bit further with that, because I do think it applies to our relationship with our kids and even with our spouse or anyone. I mean, you can use that information, but okay. So I would like to talk a little bit more about learning. What are the, are there timelines on learning? Is there a specific you know point in time in which we other than our native language which i think i talked about in um the episode with peter gray he says this is clearly something that you should learn without if you don't want an accent in your native language you need to know it by i think age 4 or something but mm-hmm. other than that are there timelines on learning are there specific things that we need to know at a specific time
1: Right. I struggle with that. I think I ask myself that pretty regularly. One of the reasons that I don't believe in timelines, or I especially don't believe in enforced timelines, I have all kinds of recommendations for my kids on things that I think that they would enjoy, things that I think they should learn, but these are not enforced like deadlines that they have. And I use my graduation story to kind of highlight that. I barely graduated on time. I had a 2.2 grade point average and I had never finished a book in any of my assignments. I had maybe read some of the short stories or something, but most of the time I just blow it off and do something else. And then I went back to college at the age of 26 and earned all A's and Dean's List and kind of all this recognition from my teachers, that kind of flipped a switch for me that like when we want to do it, we'll be able to do it so much better than when we don't want to. And that's one of the reasons I don't believe in timelines is when they are ready to do it, it's going to be so much easier for everyone involved than if we try to force them to do it. And,
0: and so much more efficient.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like we spend we spend years trying to prep kids for uh, for algebra in high school, and yet there are so many unschoolers who refuse to do math all the way up until the ages of eleven or twelve. Just wouldn't do any math, and then all of a sudden, because they had a desire or a need or a requirement to learn some of this stuff. They would go and find classes and practice, and within six weeks to six months, they would be doing high school and college algebra because they were ready for it. I have a hard time thinking to myself of anything that must be learned without the child's permission by a certain age. Even the language thing, And I'm familiar with Peter Gray. I have a ton of respect for him. The language thing to me is like, if your child is interacting with people like that language is going to come unless there's some kind of issue with ears and, and hearing or throat things, you know, infections in there, you know, I don't know all the health stuff that can affect language acquisition, but if they're around people that are using their native tongue that is going to happen
0: yeah i think i think that's assuming that they aren't exposed that's the only way that you wouldn't have enough experience with the language to some in some way have a an understanding of it and be able to use it
1: and even those kids are we actually only concerned about their language at that point that they are so isolated that they're not adopting their native tongue that like even then is that the thing that we're worried about because i can think of a few other things i'd be more worried about than whether they know the language of right. their community and there's
0: obviously something more yeah more pressing <laughs>
1: yeah i would think
0: yeah i actually wanted to illustrate a a point there too i just talked with a friend today and she was talking about how i you know i was discussing this with her and i said there's you know this strange person somewhere on high who has decided what is specifically necessary for the next generation of people. And we don't have any clue what our future is going to look like, particularly right now with tech booming. And we don't know what kind of technologies are going to be used in even 10 years from now. I would say even five years. And, you know, one of the examples she gave herself was she's like, yeah, you know, I never learned how YouTube works or the internet, you know, and you didn't learn that in school. But somehow at age 45, she's learned how to use YouTube and she's learned how to use the internet and she's learned how to communicate on cell phones. (laughs) um, Yeah. You know, when you have a a need to use something or you want to be part of something, you you know, humans are just innately curious, and they want to be—they want to know it. They want to master it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Peter Gray and Akila Richards uh, talk both talk about this quite a bit. The tools of the culture mm-hmm. that the the kids and ourselves that, as you pointed out, we use the tools that the culture uses. We don't do tutorials about touchtone phones anymore because they don't no one's using them so why would we produce that and and there's tons of things out there like that now there is an interesting shift i think in our culture that i think is really fascinating where i don't think it's a generational thing but so many people are really getting into making things in the way that they were made thousands Um, Mm -hmm. of years ago, which I find really interesting. I found a YouTube channel, or a friend of mine sent me a YouTube channel of a person who tries to make all these really neat mechanisms using only the technology that we think was uh, used like in the Bronze Age. And it's just fascinating some of the things that they can make uh, because humans were making some really incredible things when all they had was wood and stone and mm-hmm. some really crude metals. I just think that's really cool.
0: You're going to have to send that YouTube channel my way because I'll have to put it in the show notes now. People are going to be curious. I will <laughs> have to do that. <laughs> Myself <Yeah>. included. <laughs> I,
1: and I wish I could remember the name, but I will make sure I find that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There is a project actually here in Germany that I think they they got volunteers and it was a really long, long project. I think the archaeology, um, I, I don't know, some government entity hired archaeologists alongside volunteers to create A village or like some sort of small interpretation of a village. And under those same circumstances, they were given only the crude materials that were available during that age. And I'm not sure if it was the Bronze Age or the Iron Age. I'm not entirely sure which age it was, but it was fascinating, a fascinating project. And I don't know if they're finished with it yet. Now I will have to research that. Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I heard it on the radio several years ago. So yeah, so let's shift gears and talk a little bit about curiosity because that is basically what I've always preached on this podcast is that there is really no curriculum in unschooling. And what we do is, you know, follow our child's lead essentially. And so let's talk a little bit about what that looks like in practice.
1: Yeah. So your your slogan is very similar to our homeschool slogan, which is curiosity is the curriculum. And mm-hmm. we came up with that because we were telling people that we were homeschooling. This was a few years ago. And they said, oh, what curriculum do you use? And it was kind of funny because we thought to ourselves, well, if we use the curriculum, would you actually recognize it? Like (laughs) uh, it just seems like an odd question, but it's kind of like, it's kind of one of those niceties like, Oh, how's the weather today? You know, what sport team do you like? Which curriculum do you use? Um, and so then, then we get to kind of chat about how we really like to follow the, the curiosity of our kids. And it's amazing how much they learn right now. Um, all three of them, so they're seven, five, and three, they are really into the Pokemon card game and all the content that goes along with that. So day-to-day, they uh, will watch like one or two episodes of the Pokemon show. They'll go down into the basement and reenact the show in the basement. Uh, So they get a lot of exercise. They're running around, jumping, screaming, throwing fake... Pokemon balls and remembering <laughs> all the names of the creatures. My seven-year-old, who is obsessed with numbers, he studies the actual playing cards, and he can remember their hit points, the names of all their attacks. He remembers the uh, the damage that they can do, and uh, and so through this process, through his curiosity, he's practicing reading. He's getting exercise. He's watching shows that he's enjoying with his two younger sisters. Uh, And that's just one of those kind of points of curiosity. And as your audience is probably well aware of, kids are super curious. And if, if we take the time to step back and instead of saying to ourselves, what do my kids need to be learning? Like, what do I need to be doing for them right now? If we stop and ask, what are they already doing? I think that can get us pretty far most of the time. If we can stop and watch what they're doing and see the value in it, instead of trying to make sure that they are doing something that we already see value in. It's a, it's a small shift, I think, in our mindset. But it has pays big dividends in terms of how we see their behavior and how we see their choices because we recognize that their learning is full of depth and and that they're also like enjoying themselves most of the day. I mean, our kids have arguments just like most kids do, but our house is full of play a large part of the day. And I credit the fact that they are driven by their curiosity instead of some checklist of things that they're supposed to be doing.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I've noticed a lot, you know, I follow a lot of unschoolers and I have seen quite a trend with, not a trend, a commonality, I would say, between families in that because we are just going about our lives and doing things that are fun and experiencing new adventures and, you know, just being very... Um, involved in our communities, the kids are constantly being exposed to a lot, a variety of Mm -hmm. knowledge and, and um, new information. And through that, through these very serendipitous, you know, excursions, Mm -hmm. there's natural questions that come up and natural discussions that evolve. And there's no, you know, I, I, I taught for several years, you taught for several years, and it's not hard for me as a teacher to go through the – like as my kids are asking me questions and thinking, you know, talking with me and having conversations and uh, exploring their world, it's not really that difficult for me to to see like, oh, check, 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 check. You know, I can't help but do it just because I'm a teacher and I've just been, you know – programmed to, mm-hmm. to notice the learning wherever it occurs, but it's also super subtle sometimes. And one of the things that I explained to, to a friend of mine today was that, you know, she was, it, it's always about video game. It always comes back to video games, yeah, <laughs> like the video games, you know, it comes up a lot because kids love video games. They're so much fun. And, And I was explaining to her the value that I see in video games and how Mm -hmm. a lot of it is soft skills that we don't really value in our society as much. We don't hold any kind of measuring tape against it because there isn't one. You can't measure how well of a leader someone is or how well they are with teamwork. I mean, you can subjectively, right? But that would depend on the person who's surveying you at the the time. And – A lot of the skills that I see that my son uses in video games are like organizational skills, leadership, perseverance. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are things that I just – I can't prove to anybody, but I see him doing them and I see him – Also experimenting with things, you know, like trying out new things and failing and then trying something else because that didn't work and even putting himself out there like streaming on Twitch and just trying out different technologies and all of that, you know, I can't say that that, you know, he's going to take those specific skills of Fortnite to an employer and be like, I can play Fortnite really well. Okay, that's probably not going to happen, but... All of those skills that he's learning are going to be really applicable to any job he ever does in his life, and I think we need to really focus on those. We really need to value them more mm-hmm. and hold them to a higher esteem because, yeah, they're they're I would say probably more important than academics because academics can be learned anytime, anyplace, any place, any you know, they don't need to be practiced over and over again. You learn it and you can do it. And then you can prove that you can do it. You either can or you can't, but soft skills are, you know, they're part of your personality and they can't be changed as easily. You can't just over six weeks become astutely aware of your surroundings and organize tasks like, like a boss, you know?
1: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. What I was thinking about as you were Talking is that the, the way academic learning is measured is you have kind of these benchmarks that you reach. But soft skills are difficult to measure because it's not like once you have it, you have it. Like your son is going to have leadership He has leadership practice in certain circumstances. There are going to be other times that he's going to step into a situation and none of that leadership will transfer to that specific situation. But that doesn't mean he lacks leadership. It just means that he was not as prepared for that specific circumstance. And I think that there's something to be said for trying to make space in our minds when we're spending time with our kids to recognize that these behavior patterns are not like fixed entities. Like there's no such thing as a strong-willed child. In my mind, there is a child who has a habit of being strong-willed, but they're not always strong-willed. And the way that I see this happen in parent groups a lot, they like to kind of label their kid as strong-willed and like, well, what do I do for my kid who is strong-willed? And I sort of want to rewind that tape for them and say, "What? how does it help you to call them strong-willed? Is that helpful? Because the way I see it is once you think a child is strong-willed, you then interpret all of their behavior through that lens. And it's almost mm-hmm. like we need to give our loved ones a new chance every day. It's like, they were being strong-willed yesterday and stubborn. But in what ways are they developing and in what ways can I recognize that they're a different person today than they were yesterday?
0: Oh, I really love that. That's great. It reminds me of a conversation I'm trying to remember. I think Naomi Fisher did an interview with Blake Bowles about this. I posted it in my private Facebook group because I keep coming back to it because it was a conversation about – parental influence, you know, this nature versus nurture Mm -hmm. debacle. And I think, you know, at the end, she she made a really good point. She was saying that the child and parent are affecting one another. So it's not necessarily that the child – sorry, that the parent is – you know, mean and hateful to their child or or maybe not even that extreme. Maybe the parent is strict and disciplined and, you know, very authoritative, okay? And then mm-hmm. the child then becomes this person because of this type of parenting style. Well, she made the point that it actually goes both directions. So you can have a child, let's say, who is <laughs> extremely... Um, carefree and maybe a little less careful and kind of um, likes to run amok, you know, and that's kind of their character, that's their personality, and it would shape the type of parent they would become. And uh, alternatively, you know, you may have like a really quiet baby that just, I don't know, is very calm, collected, sleeps when it's, you know, tired and isn't there's doesn't fuss a lot and that parent becomes very calm and very serene and you wonder okay did i do something wrong as a parent or is is you know like it goes both ways
1: absolutely i really love her point and it's such a good reminder because i think A mom or a dad who listens to this and thinks, well, you haven't met my kid. My kid is strong willed. And I don't want to argue that point. But I think to speak to Naomi Fisher's point is that no matter what your child is like, you still have a choice of the kind of parent that you want to be to that child. I think that's kind of what she's talking about is that I don't I it's not possible for me to be the same parent to two or my three kids because their behavior influences me. And I can see that with my two older kids. The hypothetical kid you were describing was, is my middle child. (laughs) She's, (laughs) you she's just, she's more sloppy. She's slow. She's always naked. She, (laughs) um, and we love that about her. But I also change. It changes me when it's just mm-hmm. me and her. I'm a different person than it's when it's just me and my oldest. So I I love that distinction that she makes, and it's a, such a good reminder for me too.
0: Yeah, and it, it you know. I guess takes a little pressure off parents because of course we're not the same person in every single relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm very different around my friends from high school than I am from my friends that I worked with at, you know, my last school. So yeah, you adapt, you change for the the personality type that you're confronted with. And that's just human nature.
1: I wrote an article for first time parent magazine that I think applies here. It was a conversation that my wife and I had, she had taken our three-year-old on a shopping trip. And she said, when she got back, I was thinking in the van that I need to remember what it's like to shop with a three-year-old. And I paused for a few minutes and I thought, but this isn't just any three-year-old. This is this three-year-old. And this three-year-old is not necessarily a three year old, so to speak. And I really thought about that a lot about how the even the way that I talk about my kids is my brain's way of trying to like lump them together in groups is like, oh, she's a toddler. She's a terror. She's in the terrible twos. He's a teenager. These little labels change the way that I think about my kids. And so I try whenever I can remember to, I try to remove those labels and come back to this is not a child. This is my child and this is this child. And she is having a problem and she is not a problem, I think is another way another author put it. She's not a problem. She's having a problem.
0: Oh, I like that.
1: I can choose the way that I approach her with that problem instead of approaching her as a problem. Which is so, when you have a young person in your midst, it's so challenging to do. And our culture expects us to do it all on our own and Mm -hmm. expects us to be perfect. And we expect ourselves to be perfect. And it's so much pressure. And then we mess up and then we beat ourselves up. Sometimes even worse than we beat our kids up, metaphorically speaking.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I wanted to say that, first of all, is that, you know, you end up creating, you're projecting, you know, and you're creating something that may not actually exist. And I wanted to also add that it's – you said it's my child and it's – she's having a problem and it's this – on this particular day because as you mentioned before, you know, just because today is – you're having a lot of conflict with this particular child does not mean tomorrow we'll bring the same results. And, you know, we wake up different on different mm-hmm. sides of the bed. We all know there's good days and bad days. So, yeah, I like all that. And I think it does. I definitely feel like it gives parents a little bit more reassurance that, you know, it's, it, it's okay. <laughs> We're not <Yeah>. perfect. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Not only, I keep challenging myself and my wife to think about this as well, that not only are we not perfect, but we don't even know what perfect is. The fact that we feel like we're not perfect is a completely false belief because there is no perfect parent because not all kids are the same. So to have a perfect parent, you would have to have a perfect child and and a perfect relationship. And that doesn't exist. At least, not in any way that we talk about perfection. So it's another one of those kind of labels that I have to ask myself: Is this helping me at all to think of myself yeah. as less than perfect, and or to compare myself to some imaginary version of perfect? Like I can't even I can't even describe what a perf- how a perfect father would treat my kids. I'm just doing my best. So I know that I'm not perfect because I can't. I can't even define it. I don't know what that looks like.
0: Yeah. That leads me to a really good topic about boundaries. And I think the reason is, is because I see a lot of unschooling families wanting to avoid conflict at like all costs and sometimes at the, you know, to the detriment of the parents' well-being or the kids' well-being just mm-hmm. just the you know one family member maybe isn't entirely happy with the situation yet oh don't want to disturb the you know the joy and the peace and the harmony in the home except that when you do that somebody is still not completely happy or harmonious in the household so yeah true i'm I'm curious to know, like, what is your view on respect and boundaries and do you think that they can coexist and yeah, how do you, you know, handle that yourself?
1: I think they do coexist a lot uh, and maybe they ebb and flow a little bit um, because it's, since it's a relationship, there is, there's always some give and take there. I think I could use two examples because they're really common and and we don't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that we align with a lot of unschoolers on these two. So I think they're, they're good to, to highlight. One of them is bedtimes and then the other one is screen times. Um, You know, we abandoned a, a typical like bedtime where we like tuck them in and, like, this is your time to go to bed. But what we did kind of double down on was we articulated to our kids that it's important that we have time together. And since they need help with a lot of things uh, throughout the day that after a certain time, mom and I would be, would like to be alone together or have alone time by ourselves if one of the others is out. So we do have a room time where they're they have to go upstairs. We say, we go up there and say good night to them and they have to stay in their rooms, but they can choose when they go to sleep. And that was difficult for my wife because she really felt like they needed to be asleep by a certain amount of time. Um, even though she knew she recognized, well, I can't make them go to sleep though. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to keep going in and reminding them. And there was nothing for them to, especially during the pandemic, there was nothing for them to wake up for. So if they didn't get to sleep until midnight, then then they were still going to get out the amount of sleep that their they felt like their body needed. Um, and as long as they kept their voices down to a, a certain volume and didn't wake up their younger uh, toddler sister, then we felt like that was okay. And so that's been a big... I wouldn't say a big shift, but that's the, that's where we are with bedtimes right now.
0: Yeah. In our house, we had something similar. I mean, I am, I'm not really somebody who can go to bed at 11 and wake up at six or seven and feel at even remotely normal. Like I feel like a zombie. I have to get sleep. I, it's like crucial. I've always been that way. It's just a physical necessity of mine. So if, you know, everyone in the house is awake and playing games and, you know, talking loudly or whatever, it's, it's just too disruptive. I have to get some sleep. So, you know, we just, it wasn't a rule or a, uh, it didn't have to be a conflict in any way. It was just, guys, I, I mean, my kids are older, so right. They're 11 and 13. So it was just an open conversation at that point, like. Maybe you're not tired at that time and that's fine, but let's, you know, everybody have downtime at 930 so that mom can sleep and, you know, we can all be happy and, and live in this house harmoniously. <laughs> so it would, it looked a bit like that, me just being open about my needs for sleep. And, um, it was, it was not a quick, like, oh yes, that's exactly what we do. And there was no, um, it, it it didn't come immediately to a solution it was more like okay let's try this and see how it goes tonight and you know we we fiddled with it for weeks and we finally came to a a resolution where you know everybody's in their bed by 9:30 and with if, if they go to sleep or don't go to sleep then that's fine but we're quiet so that i can sleep and it's fine everybody everybody's fine with that That's awesome. that solution, so I don't know if it'll last forever. I mean, my kids are getting older there's going to be a point where they want to stay up even later, and we'll come you know we'll cross that bridge when we get there. but I think for us, it's always like how can we solve this problem? Mm-hmm. I have a problem. How can we solve it? and it doesn't need to be solved right this minute. It's not like <laughs> necessity at this very moment. A lot of times we do a lot of um, yeah, you know, I have this problem. How, how do you think we can solve it? Maybe think on it and then we'll talk in the morning or, um, it's, it's very, it's, it's the way you would talk to a friend, <laughs> you know, yeah. if I had a, if I had a conflict with a friend, what kind of conversation would I have with them now with smaller children? I, I know that that might look a little bit different, but I'm curious now, um, what was your experience with screen time? Cause we also have had some, uh, dialogue back and forth about that as well.
1: Yeah. And I love that example because you're not, you're, it illustrates that point of there's no right way to do it. There's a, there's a way that our family needs to function. And ultimately the people who need to decide that are already in the house. And you might consult some blogs and get some tips, but you're not like going to a research study and saying, look, everybody <laughs> needs eight hours that's what's going to happen. You came to the table and said, I need my eight hours. How can you guys help me with that? Because I can't do it without you. Um, so I wanted to just highlight that. It's That's really cool what you guys did there. And I would imagine that as our kids get older, we do more of that than we do now. Yeah, the Screen times is interesting be, for me because uh, my wife and I disagree on it. I really want our kids to be able to use more screens um, and to be uninhibited in it. And and my wife, Kristen, just, she's a lot more uneasy about it. So we have some kind of more typical screen time allowances where they watch some videos during what used to be a quiet time, which was nap time before, um, but that nap time has disappeared. And then they watch some before bed. Surprisingly, we haven't had much pushback. And I think it's partially because I think we've tried to do it really respectfully that we don't get mad at them or or treat them with contempt when they ask for more screen time. We just stick with the boundary and say, I'm sorry, I I understand that you want to watch more, but that's not something I'm willing to do right now. And... It almost seems like the arguments online seem to be that the the reason to not have screen times is one, that screens aren't actually as damaging as we think they are, and it's not worth putting up the fight, where on the other side seems to be screens are really damaging for young children, and it's worth putting up the fight. And we're kind of in the middle saying, well, it's not a fight for us. So we're limiting it, but we're not fighting about it. And we're not limiting it all the time. Like we're not afraid of it. So that's been a little bit of our experience. And I look forward to how we kind of grow through that and how it evolves over time as our kids get more interested in screens. It's, again, one of those tools of the culture where you can't avoid it. Eventually they will have their own devices and they're going to be able to do whatever they want with it just like my wife and I do now with ours.
0: Yeah. So first of all, I love your example because it demonstrates what everyone goes through with their partner because there are never complete, uh, well, at least in my experience, okay, maybe this exists, but I don't think there's ever complete alignment. And I think that there's a lot of guilt from the person who wants it, well, from probably from both parties, right? Like I want it this way. I want it this way. And and I think, you know, you're demonstrating conflict resolution to your kids with, by, you know, you and your wife coming to some sort of understanding about, okay, what what, how can we both live with this? If you, if I want unlimited and you want limited, like how can we agree to disagree here? You know, yeah. like what's, where are we going to go with this? And I also think that's cool that you both are willing to see how it, you know, changes over time. For us we've got, you know, an 11 and 13-year-old and we for years had limitations to screen time because this was pre unschooling and pre self-directed education. And you know, I don't think I would change that to be quite honest because I do feel like there's a and this is this is personal and this is for my own family and my own kids and what I noticed and observed. Kids under a certain age I feel like have a more difficult time regulating themselves with screen time because it is made to be addictive. And I'm at a point now where my son and I and my daughter and I can have a conversation about how video games do that. Like Mm -hmm. they actually understand how it's psychologically giving them a dopamine hit. And, you know, this is like (laughs) high level <laughs> critical thinking skills. So you yeah. can't explain this to a two or a five year old, obviously. But my kids are at a point where I can I can explain that to them and say, okay, the reason that you don't want to stop playing is because of the XYZ. And I think at that I think when you are at that point that it it does change. At least it did for us. It was it was a point where I felt like I could really just let them make the decision about it, you know? And um our son. <laughs> he he does you know he spends the majority of his time on a screen but that's that's his passion is not only video gaming but everything tech related Mm -hmm. so 3d modeling 2d animation uh youtube um twitch like i mentioned before all of his everything that he loves and he's passionate about are on a screen so how you know what what am i going to do about that and i guess the the thing that I look out for, you know, with screen time is, and this is where we're at right now with our, with our screen time limitations, if there were any, is if our kids came to a point where they didn't want to do other things that I know that they enjoy because they're choosing the screen over it. Right. Like, for example... My son loves basketball and he loves rock climbing and he loves swimming. And if I invited him to take him to do those things or, you know, it was time for him to go to his basketball practice and he was like, no, I'd rather play Fortnite, I would start to worry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because that's, that's a point where I know it's out of character for him. But obviously, I also know my child. And I think as unschoolers, that's one of our superpowers. I've mentioned this before is – you know, like that's, that's what's so brilliant about it is that we know our kids inside and out and we know when things are out of character for them. And we know when things, when, you know, things look like unhealthy behaviors. And I think it's our job as parents then to step in and, and help, you know, support them through that because that's why we're here, you know? So that's where we're at. That was a very long oh, fine. <laughs> description no, I love, of where we're at.
1: I, I love hearing those different perspectives and Even the way you were talking about previous thing about bedtimes was even if you do get concerned, you're not going to just go pick up a book that's like totally going to send you down a fear trail uh, or a fear spiral. You're not going to start pulling out all these punishments. You're going to talk to your son and say, look, this is something I noticed about you. You used to love mountain biking. It's okay if you don't anymore. But there's part of me that wonders if you are starting to feel addicted to this screen and that you're losing out on some of the things that you do really like to do. You would have a conversation about that instead of saying, uh, now that I'm worried about something, what you desire and your perspective is no longer valid. I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. I think that's one of the big differences It's not like we can do the screen time thing right. It's that throughout all of these boundaries and things that we're trying to pass down to our kids, whether they're right or wrong, we're trying to do it with their participation. We're trying to do it with them, not against them or to them.
0: And I like how it changes over time. I mean, I think that's an important thing to note because there's so many variables at play here. We have ages, we have personalities, we have parents' personalities. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's – there can't be a rule book. <laughs> it just yeah. – it's basically I've, – I've mentioned this as well on the podcast, but we're essentially wanting to break away from somebody telling us what our kids need, yet, you know – A lot of times we look to other people to tell us what we need, Mm. and that's really dangerous. I think that is where a lot of um, parents become worried, concerned, and critical of themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right. Well, that was a great spot to end on, I think. I think we had some really great topics in there, and I have just... Four more questions for you if you would like to answer them for our little curiosity round. Yep. Um, Higher away. Okay. So the first one is how do you like to learn? Uh, I
1: really like to like watch somebody uh, doing it and like work alongside them and help them with it. I learn so quickly that way, which is why writing – is such a difficult thing, has been a difficult thing for me to learn because you generally write by yourself. You don't, you aren't really doing that in tandem with someone else. So it kind of like that apprentice model works really well for me. I learned so quickly that way.
0: People just like to do, you know, yeah. they're like, okay, give me it. Just give me it. Yeah. Give me the thing. Yeah, just, <laughs> I just want to do it. <laughs> I want to jump right in. I don't
1: care if I mess up as long as someone else is there with me to help me catch it. If I'm messing up on my own and I and I like find out later, you know. That's that's really dim, um, deflating.
0: Yeah. No, I, I get that. I'm I'm similar in that way. I'm very much like a team person. Like I like to work alongside yeah. other people. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Okay. I, I actually asked these a little bit out of order, but the first question actually was, "What are you curious about right now? So what are you into?"
1: My biggest thing lately is actually meal prep, like healthy eating, cooking we do a lot of like frozen and canned foods that i don't really care for and and so that's been mine lately is just kind of taking charge of more of the meal planning and cooking the meals for the family which has been cool
0: that's really cool do you have any apps or th- you know things that you're using that are helping you uh with that
1: no i just i just uh oh. grab stuff out of the pantry and start throwing it together um
0: ah cool yeah I'm not there yet, but that's, I'm very much <laughs> a recipe follower. Oh gosh. Type a personality in that way. Like, okay. A pinch of salt. Okay. How much exactly is a pinch? <laughs> I really have to walk away from that, but I just, I did not have a lot of experience cooking as a child. So.
1: Yeah. You um, would not like me yeah. cooking because everything is eyeball. Like.
0: <laughs> no, I love that. I want to get there. I'm Philip. You have to teach me your ways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just, uh, yeah. plus I don't want to do the extra dishes, but I don't want to measure out like a yeah. quarter of a cup of ketchup I'm like uh, that that's kind of hard to clean like I can just squirt some ketchup in there I think it'll be good enough like I'm not I feel like I'm not going to ruin the recipe beyond recognition and uh, and beyond health now if you're not cooking meat to the right temperature that's a different story right um, right that I get a little bit more nervous about but yeah seasoning and stuff I just I just throw it all in basil I put mustard in stuff and uh, minced garlic and all that stuff.
0: That's awesome. But I have a lot to all learn right, well, still. Well, cooking class at your house next up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. Um, okay, so do you have a an educational resource or any kind of resource around education that you'd like to share with uh, the listeners?
1: One of the things that I really like lately is using the Masterclass series. I watch a lot of those they're just video like tutorials. It's kind of like reading a book, but you're actually hearing the author. You're like hearing the author talk it to you. So it's a video like explanation of a book that they might write. Um, so I watch videos on graphic design, cooking, writing. Uh, I watched one on guitar playing. It's just really cool to kind of watch them to their stuff.
0: I actually have masterclass on the, I have a homeschooling directory where you can look up all Mm -hmm. sorts of resources for your kiddos. And, um, I mean, obviously you can look them up for yourself as well, but, uh, I do have masterclass on there and I've heard a lot of great things. My nephew has it as a subscription. I think he got it for a birthday gift and he loves it. He talks very highly of it. So
1: it's very well done. Um, I think it kind of evolved from, I don't think it's the same company, but there was a series of videos like this made by the teaching company for the last several decades. And this is just, it's a step up from the videos that that teaching company used to do.
0: Cool. Yeah. And then the last question is, what is a book, blog, or podcast that you're into right now?
1: Well of course the Rogue Learners podcast I love that.
0: <laughs> of course. <laughs> Shout out
1: to that. The <laughs> something that I read really consistently is uh Teacher Tom's writing. Uh Teacher Tom's blog at uh, I think teachertom.blogspot.com. His stuff, he's taught preschool for decades. And his stuff is always inspiring, authentic. He's not a person that writes in a way that's like, this is what you need to do. It's like, he's constantly questioning his own practice and he lets you in on that process. Um, So it's a very, I feel like a very friendly way to read because it's not like a listicle in terms of here's the seven things you need to do with your preschooler. It's Like, I noticed this argument between these preschoolers, and I wonder what it tells me about human nature. It's very deep, but it's all about living and learning with preschoolers. So I love his blog.
0: Oh, that sounds really good. I I will definitely put all of this in the show notes, so do not need to write anything down. Um, This will all be available to you guys when you uh, click on the page. And lastly, before I let you go, I want you to tell the listeners how they can Connect with you. I'm sure that they're going to want to read your blog, and I know you have a book coming out.
1: Yeah, no release date on that, or um, or even a completion date um, quite yet. But the the manuscript is done, and so kind of working through that book proposal process. I always send people to my website philipmott.com with one L, and that's a great place to find me. Where the community is, I'm most active on social media on Twitter. And that's where I kind of just share and converse with people about parenting and education. And it's always fun to kind of plug into that community. You can meet a lot of different unschoolers just by kind of jumping into those threads. Because most of the people I interact with on Twitter are unschoolers themselves, or they're teachers that are trying to find a way out and and wrestling with these concepts that you and I wrestled with and... So it's really great to have some of those conversations about how do we take these principles and actually put them into our lives instead of just talking about them. Those are the two places that I can be found pretty easily.
0: Awesome! I will link all of that in the show notes. And I want to thank you so much for coming on. I've enjoyed talking to you so much. I think this episode has so much value. I really hope that the listeners enjoyed it and I – Just can't wait to talk to you again next time.
1: Absolutely, Jenna. We will do this again, definitely, I think. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to the Rogue Learner podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to hit subscribe and leave a review. Reviews are the best way to support the show and allow me to create new episodes. If you're looking for amazing learning resources, you can check out the Rogue Learner website at roguelearner.com where you'll find a free directory of podcasts, apps, websites, curriculum, and online courses for your kids. For even more support, you can join our Rogue Learner Facebook group. You'll find that link on our homepage at roguelearner.com. I hope to see you all next week. And until then, remember, let curiosity lead the learning.